Do you like working on individual projects or do you prefer retainers? Both kinds of work come with pros and cons and whether you choose one or the other probably depends on how much variety or uncertainty you want in your business. Retainers can add stability, but they remove the variety that comes with project work, while building a pipeline of projects often does the opposite. Our guest for the 211th episode of the Copywriter Club podcast is Brian Sparanello. He's built a successful copywriting business that does both. It's something he calls the barbell strategy. We'll share our interview with Brian in a moment, but first, this episode is brought to you by the Copywriter Think Tank. That's our private membership group for copywriters and marketers who want to challenge each other, create new revenue streams in their business, receive one-on-two coaching from both Kira and me, and ultimately grow to $200,000 or more in your business. If you want to know more, visit copywriterthinktank.com to sign up for the waitlist. Whether you're working with retainer clients or taking on individual projects, you'll almost certainly get a few ideas to apply to your own business in this interview with Brian, which will kick off right about now. So the best place to start is probably with how I got into freelancing. And you know, I wish I had some glamorous origin story that I could tell like some you know comic book superhero. But uh, the truth is, before I started freelancing, I was working at a pretty normal day job in the strategic communications and marketing division within a large sort of government contracting and consulting company. And somehow or another, I wound up on the launch email list for Ramit Sethi's Earn 1K program. And that was really the first time that I ever really got a peek into the lifestyle and the possibilities that, that exist when you go freelance. So that really sparked my interest. And I sort of made a deal with myself where if I could go off and freelance on the side, make enough money to pay for the course, that would be sort of proof of concept for me. So I went ahead and I did that and I wound up enrolling in the course and that sort of started my side hustle journey. And I started off just offering generic online marketing services because that's kind of what I did for my day job. But I quickly realized that I would need to get more specific about the services I offer if I really wanted to have success. So there were two decisions that really led me into copy specifically. The first was a more clinical and sort of surgical decision where I recognized the, the closer you are to the money, so the more directly you can tie your services to profits for the client, typically the higher rates you can charge. So you know, from a business perspective, copy was very appealing from that sense. But there was also a more personal and internal drive to be a writer that you know stems back to all the way when I was a little kid. And I remember you know, when I would have playtime when I was really young, there was a period where I would pretend that I was an author. And it didn't last very long. I'm sure I got distracted. <laughs> I'm sure I got distracted by something cooler like trains or dinosaurs or whatever else little boys like to do. But you know, I remember there was that thread and that spark and that initial curiosity in words and language, which followed me pretty much through all of school and, and afterwards. So I figured with my innate sort of interest and curiosity and drive to, to learn about writing and language, if I could just apply that to the persuasion and sales you know, pieces of copy and, and, and learn that side of the, the industry, I would probably be able to do a pretty good job. So that's where I got into copy specifically. 
And at that point, I lived the glamorous life of a side hustler where you wake up before it's light outside, do client projects before you go into the office, take sales calls on your lunch break, work all weekend. And so I was doing that for 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 five years, really just making mistakes, trying my best to learn from them, then you know, building systems, building processes, getting experience, what it's like to work with clients, all that stuff until, you know, finally after doing that for half a decade, I felt like I was finally ready. And then 2017, I had my last day, September 1st, 2017, I had my last day as a full-time employee. And ever since I have been working for myself as a copywriter. I can picture you as a little boy pretending like you're an author. So how did you role play that? As like, Were you on a typewriter or how, how were you role playing that as a kid? So I actually had a computer fairly early on. My dad was a, is a chemical engineer. And so he was kind of this uber nerd. And like this was early days of the internet. So I was born in 85. This probably was like 1990, maybe, maybe 92. Um, so being online allowed my dad to like check up on experiments and stuff without having to go into the office. <laughs> so he was a really early adopter of, you know, computers and the internet. So I got a computer when I was in like probably second or third grade. So I was like typing on my little computer and I think I even had toy computers before that. So, you know, I don't have kids, so I'm not sure exactly what the developmental timeline is. <laughs> and if it, you know, if, if, um, when exactly I was, I had that interest, but it was, it was very young. Okay. All right. So you said, it sounds like you said to yourself, I'm going to join this course with Ramit. And if I'm able to make some money from this course, then I'm going to start this side business or side hustle. Or what did, what did that look like? Were you able to do it? What were some of the wins that you had from that course? Yeah. So actually the, in, in Ramit's launch model at the time, there was a lot of sort of, it was like a sort of a challenge model. So I actually took the stuff from the challenge before I even bought the course and said, let me use the stuff that he gave away in the launch. And if I can prove to myself using that, using that free material that I could make enough money side hustling to then invest in the full course, that was sort of my proof of concept, my litmus test, because you know I didn't want to just jump on and, and, and pay what was, especially at the time, a lot of money for a course um, without really without doing something to prove that it wasn't just a flash in the pan and that it really was something that I had a long-term interest in pers- in pursuing. So what exactly was that? What did you do during the challenge that proved that you could make this work? You know, honestly, it was a bit of a scramble. I went on, I think it was Elance at the time, now Upwork, and just applied to a bunch of random jobs. I definitely got a lot of my early clients on Craigslist. I can't remember if that was before or after taking the course, but I was doing basically anything and everything <laughs> to to just again to, to 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 prove that I was committed enough to go through those trial, you know, that that period of trial and error, those mistakes. And and that, you know, when it got hard, I wasn't just going to give up because at that point, then I shouldn't invest in the course, right? Because that would that would show that I didn't have that interest, that drive that it takes to actually make an online course successful, right? Because a lot of people, you know, they buy an online course, but then they stop after video one or module one. So I wanted to prove to myself that that if I made the investment, I would follow through and I would go through the whole program. Yeah. I wonder how the course industry would change if everybody had to prove that they could do the thing before they actually bought the course. My guess is dramatically. <laughs> yeah. Or if like there was a 
FTC requirement to to publish your completion rates on your sales page. Ooh, <laughs> that would be good. Yeah, I think that that might that might put somebody's sales, a lot of people's sales, um, in the toilet. Yeah, I'm guessing. So, okay, so you went through the challenge. You, know, you went through the course. Tell us about those first budding days of your business and what you did to build up clientele, to build up your skill set, and how did you start landing those permanent clients? This is actually a pretty good lesson in terms of uh, people who are especially just starting out. The difference between zero to one and getting started, getting your feet moving, even if you're taking the tiniest little baby steps possible, is a massive, massive difference than than still sitting on the sidelines and saying, I'm thinking about being a copywriter. I'm thinking about going freelance. I want to do this, oh, but I'm not quite ready or this or that. Because at this point in the story, I think I had maybe had two or three clients and I met up with a friend of mine in New York City at like 2 a.m. at a bar and one of his friends from high school was in town. And this friend had an SEO agency. And again, I had probably worked with all of two clients at this point, found them on Craigslist or just again, randomly Upwork. But whatever it was, I had just, I had done the, the tiny little steps to get moving. So when I started talking with this friend who had an SEO agency, I was able to say, I am a freelance copywriter. And he gave me his card and he was like, hey, you know, when you're not hungover, give me a call and, and I've got some work for you. So that started my first ever four figure a month client. That client became the first client to ever pay me five figures, you know, total lifetime. And he also referred me at least half a dozen other clients that probably paid me 50 grand over the course of my career. And I've talked with this client since then. And he told me that if I had said in that random encounter at the bar that I was thinking about being a copywriter or I wanted to be a copywriter, he would have been like, yeah, okay, kid, give me a call when you're ready and wouldn't have you know, given it a second thought. But the difference of having just those couple of clients, of having taken those baby steps, it, it sort of increased my luck surface area so that when I had that random encounter at a bar in New York at 2 a.m., I was ready and I could take advantage of it. So you know, even if you're just starting out, it's, it's a question of finding the, the, what are the smallest steps that you can take and, and don't worry about, you know, thinking three, four, five years down the line. Think about what are the couple things that you can do just to get some momentum because, you, you know, I couldn't have predicted when I was going to have that lucky encounter, but by doing the things I could control, by getting those first couple of clients and really, you know, putting myself out there, so to speak, I was ready and I was in a position to capitalize when that opportunity came along. Yeah, I feel like only good things can happen at a bar at 2 a.m. Or in a, in a Vegas hotel room when you have Kira and Kim Schwamm playing Thumper. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't going to mention that, but yeah, I mean, shout out to Kim Krause Schwalm and our, our little group in Vegas at Justin and Stefan's event playing Thumper. I can't wait to play Thumper with all of you again and more. So I'm just wondering, as you were talking about the five years, you know, half a decade, building your side hustle, uh, what would you have done differently looking back? Would you have done anything differently maybe to even take that leap earlier? What advice would you give to yourself? That's a <laughs> a piece of my personality that I guess I'm sort of comfortable with at this point in my life is that I don't take change very well and I don't move quickly often. And I know you'll hear a lot of entrepreneurs talk about like move fast and break things. <laughs> that's that's not the way I operate. And you know, maybe that will become a ceiling for me at some point. But so far, 
while yes, it took me half a decade and it was a it was a pretty, you know, it took a lot of work to do all that stuff on the side. At the same time, I never really had that sort of catastrophic, you know, down to my last dollar in the bank account, no clients on the horizon. I have a, I was able to avoid any of those really dire scenarios that you can sometimes hear about. But then the trade-off was, yeah, it took me, <laughs> I, w- I was being cautious for, for half a decade. So would I have risked that greater deal of uncertainty to move up the timeline? I don't know. Things have gone really, really well for me since I you know, left my job. So I'm, I'm pretty happy with, with, at least, again, personally, for my own personality and, and the fact that I'm somewhat resistant to change, that, uh, <laughs> that I took that time to really get comfortable. You mentioned that you've never had that last dollar moment that so many other freelancers, a lot of copywriters have at some point in their business. What were you doing differently in your business to avoid that? What were the things that you were doing to help you grow in a way that was manageable and and just kind of that nice upward trend uh, so that you didn't get into any trouble? So keeping my day job for five years is really the big one because the freelance side of my life and my business has certainly had those down to zero moments, you know, six months with no clients at some points. So buffering that by staying at my full-time job for as long as I did was was a big piece of the strategy. And then on top of that, in terms of getting clients, so I guess this is probably a good time to, to talk about the the sort of framework that I thought of for myself to decide when I would be ready to quit. So I basically thought about it like a tripod, where if you think of a tripod, if you knock out any one of the legs, you still have two left to stand on. So my approach for when I would be ready to quit my job was I wanted to have six months of savings in the bank, and that was for my expenses calculated as I was a freelancer. So like factoring in the fact I'd have to pay my own health insurance, which increased my budget by a lot, um, and all the other expenses that would come with running a freelance business. So six months of expenses for me as a freelancer was one leg of the tripod. The next leg of the tripod was one client signed on a long-term retainer. And I think we can probably talk about retainers a little bit later in the episode. But I personally love retainers for that stability that they provide. And there are some trade-offs, which again, we can get into later. But the second leg of the tripod was one client on retainer that I knew would cover a good amount of my expenses. So that way, there was some stability there. And then the third piece was at least two or three warm leads in my pipeline. Because I figured with those three things, if my retainer client came on board and then suddenly bounced, I would still have those couple of leads that I could possibly slot in and replace them. And if the leads didn't pan out, but I kept that retainer client, again, I would be able to cover most of my expenses for, for the month. And then I had that savings buffer there so that basically no matter what, if anything, if both of the if both the retainer client and the leads disappeared, then I could still rely on on that savings buffer to keep me going for for that period. So that was sort of the the framework that I used to to decide when would I when was I actually ready to move on and and do this full time. Um, and then I guess we can you know I'll, I'll stop there for now, and then we can talk about either retainers or how to get clients, uh, whichever way you guys want to go. Yeah. Before that, though, I'd love to hear more about your side hustle again, because you were you were doing it for a, cu- a couple of years, five years. 
um, you figured out what worked so that you could juggle both a growing business and then your job too. So I'd love to hear more about how that worked for you. It sounds like you had morning time, but the pros and cons and the struggle, just to be real, speaking to other people who might be dealing with a side hustle or know that they will need to deal with a side hustle potentially for five years too, how can they optimize that time so that it works and it's not as painful as it can be for some people? So I was lucky. <laughs> I did it before I was engaged. I don't have any kids yet, so I did it without kids. You know, that was part of the reason that I that I decided to do it when I did was, you know, as you get older, you have more and more demands on your time. So that was one natural advantage that I had. Uh, otherwise, you know, it was getting up. I, I got up at 5 a.m. basically every day. I would either go to the gym or do client work before going to the office. I would work during the day and try to find pockets where I could, you know, again, take calls on my lunch break or, you know, duck out to, to work on something real, you know, during my time, you know, like my hour off for lunch and then trying to do more work when I got home. I will say managing your energy and not just your time, it was really important to me. What I mean by that is I do my best work in the morning. So that drove my decision to wake up at 5 a.m. because a lot of the times when I would try to schedule work for when I got home after going to my day job, I just didn't have the energy. I was spent and my natural sort of energy cycle, my natural biorhythm wouldn't allow me to do my best work. And so even if I blocked off the whole evening once I got home to work on client stuff, I, I just wouldn't have the mental bandwidth or the energy to do it. So I sort of built my day around making sure to free up that morning time because that's when I could do the most work. And then in the evenings, I would answer emails, I would take calls, I would do the stuff that didn't take quite as much you know, horsepower in my brain to, uh, to execute. And I would save that stuff for later. So that was one of the things that I did to help. And also one other piece that I forgot to mention on when I went to quit my job. So I mentioned that the second piece was, was getting a retainer client. And some people might be wondering, how do you have a retainer client when you also have a full-time job? So the, the trick was I saved up all of my vacation time. And you know, at this point in my career, I was working at the National Hockey League. So we were pretty slow in the summers because it's the off season. And I told my boss I didn't have any travel plans so that I just wanted to use my vacation time to take off Tuesdays and Thursdays. Plus, we also had half days on Fridays in the summer anyway. So that basically gave me half of my work week off. And so I burned through all my vacation time and I, I lined it up so that I signed the retainer client. Then I, I used my vacation time to take off, I think it was like six or seven weeks every day, Tuesday, Thursday, half day, Friday, use that time to work under retainer to make sure that that was a, you know, a, a good arrangement for both myself and the client. And it gave me entire days to sort of test drive what it would be like to work for myself. And if that had gone poorly, I still would have been able to sort of back out and, and pull the emergency uh, break and stop that. So that was another key piece to that tripod strategy for quitting my job that I, that I forgot to mention. Let's jump in here for a minute because I think there are maybe a couple of things that Brian shared that are worth emphasizing. Uh, the first thing that stands out to me, Kara, is just this idea of getting started and taking action. And 
uh, it's funny that the Brian talks about this, you know, getting started and taking action because he waited five years (laughs) to, you know, to jump. So what are your thoughts on this? Yeah. What I love about Brian is how intentional and methodical he is about the way he thinks and runs his business. And um, I think that works really well for him and it could work really well for other copywriters. What I love about, you know, taking five years and, and doing it correctly before jumping into your own business is that he was really clear about what he needed to do um, before starting his business full-time or jumping full-time into his business. And I think five years was great for him. And it's easy to compare time amongst copywriters and say, well, I did it in two years or I did it in six months. And I mean, first of all, it's not a competition. And second of all, it's just, there are different approaches to this. And so I love that he was so honest about the way that he did it. And I think the most important takeaway was just figure out what you need to make the jump. And it will be very different for all of us. And for me, it was more of a gut feeling, which is like, I mean, not something to brag about, but that's just how I operate. And so it was more of a gut feeling and knowing when I was ready to make the jump, but that would not work for most people. So I think it's just knowing yourself and what you need in order to make that leap. Yeah, I think it is important that we keep in mind it's different from everyone. Someone who may be in a terrible job or has a terrible boss might be thinking, I'm ready to jump now, even though I don't have any money in the bank or even though I don't have a client ready to go and just feel that pressure that forces them to move forward. And that can be okay for a certain person. Obviously, if you're more risk averse, it might make make sense to have a little bit of money in the bank or it might make sense to have a client that you know you've got a good relationship with and that you can rely on as you start to build your business. But it is different for everyone. Uh, I'm not sure I would take five years to do it. I mean, in one sense, I took you know almost almost 20 years to, to freelance full time because I was doing other things while I was freelancing. But that it was once I decided to go all in on freelancing, it definitely wasn't five years. It was a, a few months. And I did have a little savings in the bank. So that's a really good point. If I look at it that way, then it probably took me five years or more to actually go full-time freelance from the moment I realized I want to be an entrepreneur. So I think, um, again, it's like the time doesn't really matter. It's just doing it right so that you, so that it lasts and so that you build a business and you don't fall backwards. There's one other thing he mentioned, and that was this idea of trying out course content before you commit. And I know that's not something you can do with every single course, but I kind of like this idea that, you know, if if you can get a win early on, or if you can take a piece of, you know, that maybe it's the first or second module, or maybe it's the free thing that somebody does as part of, you know, a, a promotion or a launch, and it works for you, you can get that win, then that's kind of a proof point that the content may be valuable enough to invest in. And so again, I know not every course works that way. Not every program uh, has those kinds of quick wins, but it is an interesting idea to think about uh, as far as, you know, should I invest in this course? Is it going to help me make improvements and, you know, some maybe take fast action in the things that I need to do? And you know, it might be uh, one way to test that out. Yeah. And Another point that Brian made early on that really stood out to me is the story he shared about the bar and late night at the bar, you know, with his friend who happened to run his SEO agency. And that really stood out because he owned the title. He owned his identity as a copywriter, even though he had only worked on a couple 
smaller projects before then, but he was really clear about what, how he wanted to show up and what type of business he wanted to build and the type of problem he was going to solve. And so he just owned it, even though I think it's scary to own it in those moments. But I think it's important for all of us as we evolve in our businesses and we move and try new things, or you maybe want to become more of a brand strategist. Um, so in order to do that, it's really first like identifying as as that brand strategist and introducing yourself that way, and also taking some action like Brian did to take some projects so you can build your confidence, um, get some experience in that space so you can start to speak to that. But you don't have to wait, you know, wait till you work on 10 copywriting projects or take 10 copywriting courses in order to show up and say, hey, I can help you with that copy. Um, you, can, you can work with me. Yeah, I think that's really well said. He, he did a great job of owning what he wanted to do. And I think oftentimes we're too hesitant to do that ourselves. And that's great advice. Okay, so let's go back to the interview with Brian. So we've talked a lot about how you got started and how you've built your business. What does your business look like today? Are you still working with retainer clients? Are you doing project work? Tell us how you're earning your money. Yes, I'm still doing retainers. I love retainers. At least one condition, though. So retainers are both a ceiling and a floor. So they're great because they provide you that stable foundation that you know that money is coming in every single month. But obviously, if you're on retainer, you can't really raise your rates on your retainer clients all the time. That part of the definition of a retainer is the client is taking a long-term bet on you and that you'll keep your rates relatively consistent. So that becomes a ceiling too. So my strategy, and I'll just talk real numbers, is I try to make between nine dollars and $10,000 a month from retainer clients, two to three retainer clients at most. And that is half of my bandwidth for a given month, give or take. So the retainer clients are between nine dollars and $10,000 a month and about 15 to 20 hours a week. And that gives me enough time to then pursue other what I would say, take big swings, right? So I can work on bigger projects, things with a lot of upside. I've tried to go the royalty route and failed spectacularly. So we can talk about that if you want. Um, but that, you know, that's been my, my sort of barbell strategy of both having stability and having a very comfortable lifestyle and again, getting those stable retainer clients every month, plus also bringing in project work where I can raise my rates, where I can try to do more ambitious things, grow my skill set, grow my revenues, and I do that with, you know, I, I achieve growth with the other half of my time, basically. Cool. Talking about your retainers, how, I mean, what is the breakdown for any new retainer? So do you have a certain amount? You're like, if you want to work with me on retainer, this is how much it is. And how do you structure your retainers so that it does work for you and it's not painful? Uh, what is a smart way we can structure it and handle communication and handle that work and what... Yeah. I mean, what do you charge initially and what would you recommend copywriters think about when charging for retainers? Great question. This is one of my favorite subjects of all time, even though it's super nerdy. So when it comes to retainers, let's start with the financial piece. So one of the big challenges... there. So there's basically there's two mistakes that most freelancers make when they bill on retainer. The first one is more obvious and that's they don't bill the client until after they do the work, right? So they'll work the month of August and then send the bill for August. And that puts them in a bad spot because they work all August and then the client decides not to pay. 
you're both, you've lost that money and you've lost that time. So the first thing, it's a pretty easy fix, is you just, you invoice your client ahead of when you do the work. So for me, my invoices go out on the 15th of the month and then the client has until the end of the month to pay and that covers my services for the coming month. So I'm always getting paid a month in advance. So that solves the first problem. But the second problem is even if you're charging in advance, when you have a retainer, you're, you're, you're looking a month ahead. So I'm blocking off time next month and, and actively turning down projects to hold space in my calendar next month for, for my retainer clients. So if there was a retainer client who suddenly you know, said they wanted to cancel hard stop and you know, even though I, I, you know, I'm no longer going to work next month and not get paid for it, I've still held time in my schedule and I'm still budgeting my life and my business around that client being on board for at least one more month. So the second big thing that I do is I, 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 do, I call this the landlord retainer because I stole the idea from kind of shady New York City landlords, no offense. But if you, you know, Akira knows what I'm talking about. If you rent an apartment in New York City, they ask for basically everything on your firstborn child <laughs> to, to vet you before you take an apartment. So the you are typically paying a big security deposit, first month's rent, and last month's rent, which is the key. So I collect the final month's payment on my retainers up front. So that means most of the time I'm collecting a three-month deposit to begin. So it's the client is paying for the remainder of the current month, because usually the retainer is not starting on the first of the, first of the month. So I'll just, you know, if it's it's you know middle of August right now. So if a client wanted to start a retainer today, they would pay for the rest of August. They would pay for all of September, right? Because I'm getting money a month in advance. And they would pay for their final month all up front. So that's a two and a half month deposit to get started. And it it sort of protects my time. And the if I'm living up to my end of the bargain, I am then actually clearing out big chunks of my schedule and budgeting time to be working with this client you know, for that foreseeable future. So you know, they are sort of, getting something for that investment. And that is my commitment and the clearing of my schedule for their work. What are some of the other issues that come up with retainers? I know they're often really po uh, popular with some co uh, copywriters, but other copywriters have really struggled to make them work. So yeah, let's talk about boundaries and some of the other issues that come up. So the, the best way to do a retainer is if you can somehow get it to be for a fixed scope of work. So every month you're delivering, you know, 10 emails or, you know, 20 blog posts or whatever it is. But for me, my clients do tend to need a lot of different things. That's part of the reason they want to work on retainer. So for me, the biggest thing, and again, I just, I go back to the contract because that's sort of the, the, the agreement that governs the relationship. So in, in all my retainer contracts, it says that, that I'm not basically, I'm not required to spend a certain amount of time working on the their business. So there's no minimum number of hours for me where like if I don't put in the full amount of time, I'm somehow like violating our our deal. But it says that I will work up to a certain amount of, of time for that client each month. And in that anything over that we would have to agree in advance. Now I love my clients. They are amazing. I pick you know I, I'm lucky to be able to choose clients that I have a great relationship with. So I am not punitive about this where 
you know, if a client has a big launch and they need a little bit more of my time on a certain month, like I'm not holding them down to the second here, but you know, that it is in there as protection and as a sort of baseline understanding of how much of my bandwidth they're going to get. And then from there, it's really about managing the client relationship in the process of doing the work. So for me, that looks like a weekly call where I get on the phone with my clients every week. Some clients, it's it's every other week, depending on on you know how the business works. But I will meet with them once a week or once every other week and tell them, you know, we'll talk about the upcoming projects. And I'll say, okay, this these are the things that I can do in you know the next period before our next call. And this is something I've gotten out of experience. I'm pretty good now at saying, okay, you know, roughly speaking, I have this much time for the client. These are the projects. This is about what I can get done in that time frame. And at that point, if I've promised something to the client, unless it takes like a hard right turn for some reason, I will just deliver on whatever I've agreed during our weekly call. So that way, you know, it's basically I'm managing my workload every week or every two weeks on these calls with the client. And whatever scope I commit to during that time, you know, sort of come hell or high water, I'll get that done for them. And if it takes me more time than I budgeted, that's kind of my bad. And you know, I'll learn from that for next time. Okay. A couple of follow-up questions. So when you're talking about taking the first and last month, I think that's so smart, but are you talking about contracts, long-term contracts? So they are working with you for six months or 12 months, or is that not part of the, the contract? Oh yeah, I've I'll I'll keep my retainer clients around for as long as I'm making a meaningful contribution to their business and they're willing to continue investing in my services. You know, the <laughs> we might talk about this a little later, but I had one client who was with me for three and a half years and over that time paid me $163,360. So it was very, very worthwhile for me to keep them around and continue working with them. And not just for me, but they were making multiples off of their investment because I was helping them grow their business and generate more sales and increase their conversion rate and all these other things. So, you know, it was a mutually beneficial relationship that lasted for for three and a half years. Is it month to month for the, I mean, they they clearly want to stick with you and you've protected yourself so you don't lose that money if they dip out. But are you working month to month with them? Is that... I mean, clearly they're sticking around, but can you talk a little bit about whether that's a good setup for copywriters who are working on retainer for the first time? Yes. So it is month to month after that. So they make the initial deposit and then I invoice them, uh, like I said, on the 15th of the month on a monthly basis. They have until the end of the month to pay. Then that locks me in for the, the next month. And that cycle just repeats itself until the client finally says they want to end the retainer. And at that point, you know, I'm I'm contractually ag- obligated to work one more month, which is that month that they've paid for up front, right? So it it basically says they, that I will work the rest of the month that they tell me that the retainer is over, plus the entire next month, which they have paid for up front. And so so yeah, I'm just I'm getting paid on a monthly basis until that sort of end scenario happens. Cool. Let's talk about royalties. You mentioned that you've tried royalties. It didn't work. I mean, this is something that comes up often um, in our community. And so what have you learned? What works? What doesn't work? What was your experience like? <laughs> so get ready. Get the face palms ready because this is... Uh, 
I don't know. I don't know what to make of myself, but the the story is I had a repeat client come to me. So this was a company that I'd worked with a number of times before. Great people, really trusted them, and they they needed a, a video sales letter script. And I believe my rates at the time were around seventy five hundred. But in the discussions, they we agreed. They kind of convinced me to to do it for only twenty five hundred upfront. So I took a five thousand dollar pay cut, but I would get the holy grail of royalties. So at that point, I'm like, you know, I'm gonna retire early. I'm gonna buy a yacht. I'm just my job's gonna be to open the mailbox and cash checks. Like, you know, I've got that royalty dream on my mind, and so I, I bust my ass. And I spend about 200 hours working on this script, making it as good as I can possibly get it because you know I'm invested, which is one of the great things about performance deals, don't get me wrong, is that you, know, you as the copywriter are invested in the success of the promotion. So I did all that. I gave the copy over to the client. They reviewed it really quick and said it was approved. They're going to go ahead and make the video. So you know, I give them about a month or so because I know it takes a while to produce these videos. So I follow up no response. So I give them a couple more weeks. Maybe it's taken longer than they thought. Maybe something else came up. Follow up again, no response. So that happens for a number of times until like three months later, client gets back to me. and is like, yeah, uh, we decided we're just going to cancel the project. Sorry. Bye. <laughs> so I took a $5,000 pay cut, right? I, I slashed my rates by 70%. I wound up working for $12.50 an hour. When I had a, when I had I had other clients paying me ten times that for other projects at the same time, <laughs> and and then they just never ran the copy, so I never got a chance to earn the royalties. So that sucked, but there's a there's sort of a lesson buried in there, and this is something that that I've done throughout my freelance journey, and I I don't really know where I picked this up, but whenever something happens that I'm like, you know, that really wasn't great, I will. I will ask myself, okay, so what do I do to make sure that this doesn't happen again? And what I came up with for this this royalty situation was now whenever I do a performance deal, there's a clause in the terms that says the client is obligated to deliver a certain number of impressions or email sends on the copy. And if they don't, they then have to pay me a kill fee to make up for my lost opportunity to earn those royalties. And, you know, and then the last detail of that is if they do happen to run the copy later, the kill fee just becomes an advance on the royalties and they don't have to pay me anything else until my royalties have exceeded the kill fee. But so I learned that lesson from getting smacked in the face by my uh, my sort of lust and greed for, for, for a royalty deal. But, you know, it also made me smarter in the long run. And I've kind of, you know, again, I fixed that problem for my business going forward. Yeah, that's such a smart clause to put in your contract. I've heard a lot of people just say, "Oh, I'll only work with clients who have a track record of, you know, tracking uh, the the success of a package and paying out royalties to other copywriters." And so they maybe cut themselves off to other clients who would be willing to try it. But you, by protecting yourself with that clause, that, that just uh, it strikes me as a really good idea for anybody who wants to work uh, for royalties. Yeah, and I I even talked to a couple of I guess quote unquote a list copywriters who were at that uh, event that we were all at in Vegas back in the beginning of the year, and I mentioned so this was that event had come 
basically right after I had this whole <laughs> debacle. So I was talking with with some of these other people about what happened. And when I mentioned the change that I made, a lot of these guys who who have made significant money on royalties are like, damn, that's really smart. I gotta add that. So yeah, even you know, even these these men and women who are at the very top of of copywriting who who you see from the outside as kind of you know royalty icons, uh, even they weren't doing this and they decided that it was something that they thought they should add. And I, again, I will say this was a repeat client who I had built some trust in, which was also part of the the sort of extra twist of the knife of why this was so awful was it happened with a client who had previously shown no signs of, of any sort of, that they would sort of you know, cancel the project so suddenly like this. Let's break in again and go a little deeper on the topic of the barbell strategy. So Rob, can you talk through that strategy? So we asked Brian about his business and he talked in depth about retainers and said that was one part of his barbell strategy. And then I asked this question that kind of took us off topic and we really didn't get the chance to talk about the second half of the barbell strategy, which is also having time in your business for a project slot. And Brian, I think, rotates you know projects through that, and it gives him an opportunity to test out new clients or to work on different kinds of projects that aren't part of his retainer. So, you know, where a retainer may be more focused on on content or you know producing a certain number of landing pages or sales pages, if you have that open rotating project slot, you're able to take on maybe a larger VSL project or maybe you know a, a larger launch. And so, having those two parts of your business, one retainer that gives you that stability and that you know the money is coming in, especially if you do it the way that Brian does it, you know that money is going to be there every month. And then also having this other half where you can bring in additional income or you know try your hand in new projects, different kinds of work. I just think it's a really good way to approach business and to add both things, you know, that the variety of projects and the stability of the retainer. Yeah. I've started doing something similar um, in my own business too. I mean, in addition to what we do with the copywriter club, I have one retainer and then I like to keep one, one spot open for a rotating project as well that I may fill if something sparks my interest and grabs me, or I may just leave it open because I need more time for family or I need more time uh, to give to TCC. So I really like that approach of thinking through it that way. And, and as someone who is very anti-retainer, for many years. You were very anti <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what my problem was. Um, but I think what I've learned moving into the retainer model mode, um, maybe maybe it was Brian who moved me over, but it's really good just to stay open throughout your copywriting slash marketing uh, career, just to kind of stay open to different business models, different types of offers, different types of ways you can structure your work as a copywriter, because what may have worked for you a year ago might not work today. And maybe even something like retainers that I was not interested in a couple of years ago uh, might work really well if you want that stability and you want to do deeper work with clients and get some bigger wins long term. So anyway, what I'm taking away from that is uh, I should just be more open and not rule anything out. Yeah, and retainers can be especially useful, I think, at the very beginning of a copywriting business because it does give you that stability when it's so easy to panic, you know, as you're looking for your second or your third or your fourth client, or you're trying to figure out proposals, you're trying to figure out your pricing. And if you've just got this 
one stable client who's there, who's you know paying you for a certain amount of work. It gives you that flexibility to you know practice your craft, get better at copywriting, develop a couple of samples as you're starting out, um, and then you know use the other time in your business, like Brian does, you know for for project work or for other things. Yeah, and if you have a team, if you have junior copywriters on your team too, a retainer is great because you can work with a select number of junior copywriters who you can depend on month to month. So you're not starting from scratch and, and having to find new junior copywriters. You can build systems and just kind of get that all dialed in rather than having to start over with each project and figure out who has the right voice for that project. So again, it just it feels easy in many ways. Yeah, when you mentioned dialing in your retainer system, you know, I don't want to necessarily reteach everything that Brian just shared, but you know, a quick recap on how he makes his retainers work. He you know, invoices in advance, a month and a half to two months in advance. He uses that landlord strategy. So he's collecting that final payment. So, you know, there's no surprise at the end when, you know, the client says, I'm done and and you know, suddenly he's got this time in his calendar that's booked, but there's no work for it and no money coming in. Uh, the boundaries that he sets around his time so that his contract says, you know, you get up to say 10 hours a month or up to 10 hours a week and you bill in addition for anything that goes over that. And then especially important, that weekly check-in call where he's able to identify exactly what's going to get done each week and to deliver the following week. And the thing I really like about that weekly check-in is that it's kind of this opportunity to um, to get a feedback loop going, you know, so you know, within a few days or, or after going through this loop a few times, exactly how much work you're going to get done for a particular client. And it just dials in your ability to promise what you're going to get done. So I, I think Brian's got this figured out in a really good way and maybe something that I'm going to borrow when uh, I book my next retainer client. Yeah, I've definitely borrowed the weekly check-in. It's just so easy if you can say for all clients, right? Even for projects, I'm going to check in. Every Friday is my check-in day. I know our Facebook ad manager, Alvaro, does that really well. Every Friday, he checks in with us and sends us a quick video to let us know how updates on ads that we're running. And I think it's just such a simple system so that everyone's on the same page and um, clearly communicating throughout a project. So we can all do that uh, and implement that system. Yeah. And then finally, you know, what Brian shared about, you know, the project that went bad with his royalties. I've had a similar experience with the client that I was working with. I didn't lose money like Brian did, but the the work that we were doing wasn't as effective as what the client had hoped. And so when they ended up cutting me a check, they actually said, We've lost money on this project because, you know, for for reasons that were out of my control, uh, it didn't perform quite as well as what we had hoped. And so you know, royalty projects can go bad. And so it, it definitely pays to build in like Brian did, you know, ups, upfront payments, kill fees, um, you know, opportunities for, you know, renegotiating fees if things go wrong. We've talked a lot about royalties on the podcast and we've often talked about people who have made them work, but when they go bad, they go bad. And so it's just nice to be able to put some of those things into perspective and maybe be prepared for when things go wrong. Ultimately, 
what Brian has done really well is adjusting as he goes along. And when he makes a mistake, he learns from it and he updates that contract so it doesn't happen again. And it may, like, not everybody actually does that. So I think we could all benefit from doing that. And if you have a retainer that's not working well, but you still want to try the retainer model, just figure out, like, where is there a problem? Where is it breaking down? And how could you, how can you change that through your contract or through your communication, through expectations? And Brian has the right approach, just thinking through it as a teaching moment and um, and then helping others, uh, as we'll talk about more, so that they don't make the same mistake. Let's go back and wrap up the interview with some questions about getting your clients to send more clients your way. So I want to change the conversation just a little bit and talk about the program that you launched uh, just a couple of months ago, uh, Freelance Like a Pro. How has that impacted your business and what are you doing to grow that product? So I really look at freelance like a pro. It's pretty much a separate entity from my copywriting business. And the reason I I decided to do that was service-based businesses are great for a number of things. You can make good money without a lot of investment costs. And you know if you have reasonable skill sets, you can you can make pretty again you can make good money without a lot of upfront investment of money or of time and you only need a handful of clients to start making a good living but it also doesn't scale very well right so so the service business to me is is sort of my first step to getting control of my time running a business and and getting that that initial freedom and control but then Freelance like a pro is a more online business model of you know like the publisher info product type model is my plan for that and so again sort of going back to how I decided to go into copywriting there was the the business tactical financial reason and there was the internally driven um, interest same thing with with freelance like a pro dot com part of me from a business perspective wants something that's a little bit more scalable to work on but then part of me also after freelancing for eight years, making eight years of mistakes and asking myself that question, how do I make sure that this doesn't happen again? I've built up a lot of, of you know, resources and tips, mindsets, strategies, things that I feel like I can help the next wave of freelancers skip some of those painful moments so that they're not taking a 70% pay cut and working for $12.50 an hour. <laughs> so, you know, I want to sort of pass along those lessons now to that, again, that next wave of freelancer. So one of the things I know that you teach in this program, or at least that you share with your list is the idea of quick referrals, uh, 30 second referrals, or the way that you get clients to give you additional referrals. Will you talk us through your process for doing that and how you basically guarantee that every client you work with starts to give you referrals? Gladly. So the 30 second referral model really it's based on what I would call an invisible conflict between freelancers and their clients. And what I mean is, in a perfect world, our clients, as freelancers, our clients want us to spend as much time as possible working on their projects. But for the sake of our own businesses, you know, if we don't spend time bringing in new leads, doing our own business development, if we spend all our time doing client work, we all know what happens. 
feast or famine cycle where you do 100% of your time on client work, then you run out of client work, and then you do 100% of your time on marketing while, and you're making no money. And it's this terrible back and forth seesaw of a problem. And, and so sort of at the heart of that is this conflict of, on the one hand, you want to give, your clients want as much of your time as you can give them. And the freelancers often feel compelled to give a lot of their time to their current clients. And then it puts them in this position where they have a tough time also bringing in the next round of clients. And so there's a very easy and elegant solution to that. And it's basically to, to quote unquote, reinvest the time that you save if your clients give you referrals back into your clients' projects. So how that would look is you, you essentially pitch your potential clients. So before you even sign them to a contract, you explain to them that the way you see your business, you want to spend as much time as possible serving your clients. And anything that takes your time away from serving your clients is something that you try to eliminate as much as possible, which includes business development. Because your perspective is every hour you spend out looking for a new client is an hour that you're in some ways stealing from the clients who have already paid you. So rather than do that, which you don't think is fair, instead, you want to give your client as much of your time, as much of your attention, the highest level service that you possibly can during the project. And then in return, they give you two referrals as compensation to make up for the time that you had to, again, borrow from your own marketing practice and deliver into this client project. And so at the end of the show, I will actually give you guys a link where you can get the exact script that I use on my own calls to have this 30-second conversation. It only takes, again, it takes about 30 seconds to, to explain this to your potential clients. And then once they agree, referrals have basically become part of your compensation in the project along with the, the money and whatever else you're getting. Can you just give us a couple pointers? I know you have the, the script people can download and that's cool. Um, but just a couple of pointers. So because it seems like it could be a very quickly klutzy conversation that does not go well if not done correctly. Fair. Yeah. The conversation happens. It, it depends on your specific sales cycle. But at some point before you've given the the client or the again, the potential client a a proposal or a contract or anything like that, that's where you would have this conversation and you would to, for me, it, it comes as part of a larger discussion about what it's like to work with me. So I'll after we've talked about the the scope. So you know, Kira, if you want to <laughs> pretend you're my client, we'll say, okay, Kira, I understand that you you know you need a you need my help with a long form sales letter. It'll be you know about this product, this and that. Do I have that right? Are we basically on the same page about the scope of the project? Yes, I do. I actually do need help with that. <laughs> so, you know, I would confirm with the client what what they need, make sure we're on the same page there, and then I would transition to 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 a conversation about, okay, so with the time we have left, I want to talk a little bit about what it's like to work with me sort of on a day-to-day and and project management perspective. So, here are some things you can expect from me, you know, in terms of when I communicate, when I'm online, when I'm offline, I'll you know, I go into my whole I'll set all those expectations. And as part of that is when I will say, by the way, I also have this philosophy where I want to spend all of my as much time as possible serving my clients. And therefore, 
I would basically say the, the exact, most of what I said earlier, just, you know, a couple minutes ago in the show, I would repeat that pretty much that whole conversation, but from the first person. Um, and again, I just don't want to, it's not that I'm trying to hide it. It's the, the script is, is essentially what I said before, but from the first person. Obviously you're doing a lot of things right in your business, Brian. Can you talk about maybe some of the investments that you've made as you've grown, the things that you've done in order to up-level more quickly? Of course. I mentioned that I kind of got my start with that Earn 1K course from Ramit. That was the first pretty big investment I made in in this pathway. And earlier on, I was almost entirely learning through books. So my strategy, especially at the beginning, was as I was, again, taking those baby steps I talked about a little bit earlier in the show, figuring out where I had weaknesses. So I know some people will say, you know, don't worry about your weaknesses, focusing, you know, focus on your strengths. <laughs> but for me, the way I looked at it was my weaknesses, especially when I am the entire business, is like holes in a boat. So if I don't plug those holes enough to just keep the boat afloat, at least, I'm going to sink. So let me let me correct those weaknesses at least to the point where the boat will stay afloat. And then I'll use my strengths as the motor to drive it forward. So I started by looking at where I was struggling. So was I not closing deals when I had sales calls? Okay, let me read a bunch of books on salesmanship. Uh, was I caving in when I was asking for higher rates? Okay, let me read some books on negotiation. Of course, always trying to read books on the craft of copywriting to get better at my skill set. But I would say that was probably about half of the books I read were actually about the the craft of writing copy. And the other half were other related skills to have success as a freelancer. Again, networking, negotiations, sales, business management, um, you know, accounting, all that stuff that goes into running a, a successful and profitable freelance practice. I would love to hear about where you're struggling today. Cause like like Rob mentioned, you know, you're you're doing so many things well. You've been doing it for a while and you're now teaching and sharing what you've learned and those lessons within your platform. But like I just want to hear about all the hard stuff right now that you're working through that's just not your area of strength and um, that you're stumbling through as a business owner or even a writer, a marketer. So I will say the uh, the whole losing $5,000, that, that that happened earlier this year. So, so I'm still making mistakes on the freelance side of my business. But also now that I've launched this new project, Freelance Like a Pro, which again is the more online business model, I... I work with clients every day where, you know, I will log in to their email platform and see they literally have 16,633 times more subscribers than me, right? So they have six and seven figure lists. I have barely over a hundred people. I have, you know, I work with these clients who are making seven, eight and nine figures a year and I've literally made zero dollars. So I am going through this, this cycle right now of, you know, I'll see something like that and I'll I'll feel like, okay, there's no way I'm ever going to get there. This is worthless. Why am I even bothering? You know, that is so far in the future if I ever get there at all. So why don't I just close up shop? This is not worth it. So that is, that's been a struggle for me as I go into this new, you know, sort of, I guess, new side of my business or this new project that I'm starting is really struggling with the comparison to the clients I work with on a day-to-day basis who are so far ahead of me. And what I've tried to do is really 
take a step back and recognize I've been, you know, freelance like a pro has been around at, you know, while we're recording this has been around for you know, a month and a half, basically. Some of the clients that I work with have been around for a decade and a half. So it's, it's crazy for me to, to try to compare where I am after a month and a half to where they are after 15 years. But for some reason, you know, that comparisonitis just lives inside all of us. And so I'm, I try to really take a step back and remind myself of that whenever I'm feeling sort of defeated or like giving up because I see how far ahead some of these clients I have are. Um, and then the other thing is, is getting some early feedback. So the fact that I've had a handful of people reach out to me already and tell me how beneficial some of the tips and the stuff that I've been sharing is for their business, even after only a month and a half, that's really, that's been inspiring to me. And that's kind of helped me through those moments to remind me why I did this in the first place. And it's to, it is to pass along those lessons and to feel like I'm helping that next wave of freelancers come up without some of the struggles that I've had. Can you also just talk about what it actually takes to launch something like a, pl- a new platform, freelance like a pro for you? And you talked about the mindset and what you're doing to combat, you know, w- everything that's tripping you up, slowing you down. But what does it actually take to launch a platform and how are you approaching it? Is it are every month you're focused on a different aspect of it? You know, it's, of course, list growth is happening in the background and you're a smart marketer and you know that, but what else does it take to launch a platform and to take it from zero to 100 and to grow it? How do you think about that? So my plan was to launch with a couple pieces of content, a lead magnet, and a basic website. And so that was my my plan. And honestly, you guys played, you don't know this, but you played a huge role in, in me actually stopping procrastinating and getting this thing live because we had to move the date of the podcast back a little bit. And I was originally planning to, to have everything ready for that, that date a couple months ago. Oh. And, oh. and I had been procrastinating, procrastinating. And then I had this opportunity to come on the show and I was like, this is, this is perfect. You know, I, I can't turn this down. I've been a fan of the show for so long. This is this is a huge opportunity. You know, get your ish together and get this site up in time for the show. Luckily, you know, that was a scramble. <laughs> I really was kind of building the plane as it as I was or whatever that phrase is about trying to build the plane as you're going down. <laughs> I had some of that going on to try to hit that first date and then luckily we were able to push it back a spec. And that gave me just enough breathing room to tighten everything up and really feel like I was comfortable and confident launching it. But again, I, I, I probably would have kept procrastinating if you guys hadn't have asked me on the show <laughs> to, to give me that hard deadline of, of this needs to be together and ready to, to be on the podcast. So Brian, I'm curious, what's next for you? You know, you've obviously you've got your retainer stuff going on, the projects that you're working on, you just launched a new program. What comes next? Yeah, my focus right now is freelance like a pro. It's it's basically in my schedule, I treat it as my fourth client. So I have my two retainer clients, I have one rotating project spot, and then I have freelance like a pro. And that's you know, it's sort of like a new baby. <laughs> it takes a lot of maintenance to to get something off the ground. So now that I've kind of launched the the site and I've started writing regularly to my email list, my first priority is really keeping that consistency and making sure that I'm emailing my list once a week on Tuesdays is the day I chose. And then 
my, uh, my system's mind thinks, okay, if I'm writing an email, how do I get the most amount of content out of that email without doing a lot of extra work? So the email goes out on Tuesday, and then a week later on Thursday, I republish a version of whatever I send in my email list to my social feed and to my blog. So I've kind of got this little syndication machine running that, that is based off this Tuesday email. And so keeping that running, staying consistent is number one. And then if I have additional time on top of client projects and everything else, it's doing, it's actually a pretty similar strategy to my freelance business where I've got the sort of maintenance side of the, the business, which is my retainers on the freelance side and my weekly emails on the freelance like a pro side. And then there's the growth side of the business where, again, freelance is retainer, or sorry, is the performance deals or is like the large one-off projects. And then on freelance like a pro, it's things like this. It's coming on podcasts. It's looking for guest posts. It's trying to maybe get, you know, picked up to write for a big publication like a, a Forbes or an Inc or a, a Medium or whatever. So that's, I don't really know why I divide my business into those two categories of stability and then growth but it works for me. So I'm sticking to it. Well, final question before we wrap, you know, what does the future of copywriting look like to you? And does it reflect this structure and how you approach business with the stability and the growth and client services and then building a platform? Um, do you think that reflects what more and more copywriters will do and start? So have either of you heard of a phenomenon called the Lindy effect? I feel like I have, but it, I'm, I'm not thinking of what it is. So it's this phenomenon that basically says for non-living things, so we're not talking about human beings, for non-living things, the longer they've been around, the longer they will likely continue to be around. So you know, if you've got a book, if it's been on the bestseller list for about a week, you can safely guess it'll be around for one more week. But if it's been on the bestseller list for a year, then you can probably guess it'll be around for another year. Which means if you had to try to predict what book will still be popular 100 years from now, which is basically zero books, right? The, the safest bet is a book that has already been around for over 100 years, because that means other books have tried to come in and take its space, and it's sort of stood up to them. Plus, it's been through economic transitions and cultural transitions and you know, all these different things. And there's something so fundamental about that book that it just stands the test of time. So that same principle applies to copywriting. So for me, if you're asking what the future of copywriting looks like, you know, what are the last jobs that are still going to be done by humans when our robot overlords take over? It's, it's the stuff that has already been through a number of pretty, pretty seismic transitions. If you think about moving from completely offline to terrestrial TV and radio to now a lot of online and digital marketing and you know, who knows what comes next. But the things that I think about are you know, brand advertising, direct response advertising, things like that that have already survived a number of massive shifts in the marketplace, to me, are the ones that are most likely going to still be around 10 or 20 or 30 years from now, which is part of the reason that I've gone into direct response and stayed there and haven't sort of repositioned myself is because, at least for now, I'm pretty comfortable that that will be one of the things that survives. I would stake my future on that before I stake it on like TikTok ads. Yeah, makes sense. So Brian, uh, great interview. Thank you for sharing so much of what you did. First of all, 
I got to give a quick shout out to everybody from the Copywriter Club Facebook group who took the time to answer my question about what makes a good podcast interview. To the extent that I've done a good job today, you guys deserve a ton of the credit for helping me think through how I was going to handle this. So thank you all so much. And Rob and Kira, you guys both too. I've been a fan of this show for a long, long time. I've listened to every episode. And so I owe you both a huge debt of gratitude as well. So thank you so much for having me. So that wraps up our interview with Brian. What stood out to you most in the last couple of minutes, Kara? The whole idea of investing in what you need now and, you know, be aware of weaknesses, plugging any holes, you know, making sure that the business is floating uh, and not sinking. And so, um, you know, I think there, there could be a whole masterclass just on investing in your business and, um, you know, I think some of the more successful copywriters that many of us look up to and admire probably make really smart investments in their business. And um, so I'm always thinking about what investments make the most sense for me and my business right now. And sometimes if we go back to Mike Kim's episode, episode 200, where he talked about the different types of investments, I believe it was courses, contractors, or coaching. Um, if you understand the problems that you're dealing with or even a clear vision of where you want to go over the next six months, year, it makes it a whole lot easier to figure out what investments make the most sense. And so uh, I'm constantly thinking about like, what's a smart investment? What's a, What would be maybe a, a less useful investment right now? And so having that awareness is, has been really helpful. Yeah. I mean, we should come up with a tool that helps us identify like what is the next thing that needs to be fixed or next thing that needs to be learned or next thing that needs to be built. Because this is the thing that keeps me going. And I think, like you said, most successful copywriters are doing this constantly, not necessarily taking copywriting courses after copywriting courses after copywriting courses, or even reading copywriting book after copywriting book, but figuring out, okay, where is my business breaking down right now? And what is the resource that can help me fix it? And sometimes it might be a book. Sometimes it might be a course. Sometimes it might be a coach or a contractor, like you mentioned that Mike taught, but just sort of identifying like, where is the next thing that I can improve to get the biggest bang for my buck? And uh, yeah, maybe uh, if we can figure that out in a way that makes sense, we can share a tool like that with our audience. Yeah, maybe we can each share. I mean, what one specific investment that you've made recently? I mean, I could share for me over the last year, I realized that my marketing had really fallen off for the Kira Hug brand and I just had dropped it all together. And so um, realizing that that wouldn't align with some of my goals in the future, I needed to jump back on the marketing bandwagon and get some support. So for me, the investment looked at looked more like hiring contractors, finding someone to help with social media, someone to help with pitching podcasts. And that won't last forever necessarily. I don't necessarily need to pitch podcasts for eternity, um, but just having a clear idea of, well, when do you need that boost? Um, and when do you need to focus more on maybe networking and being a part of uh, some type of mastermind group or investing in other networking groups? When, are, when do you feel like you need um, some more connections. Maybe you haven't invested in that in a while and you're feeling like you aren't getting as many leads. So focusing on networking could help. Or again, like you said, education, um, that kind of always is in the background for for my investments, like thinking of ongoing education. But like you said, it's not necessarily course after course. Yeah. I mean, for me recently, it's been coaches, You know, finding somebody who's done something 
that I want to do or that's similar to what I want to do and helping point me in the right direction so that I can do that. And uh, I think, you know, if I were to fill out some kind of a, a quiz or a checklist about all of the things that I need to improve, I'm sure that there's probably eight or nine different coaches that I should be working with. But just getting feedback from somebody who's a step or two ahead of you and then able to say, okay, this is what's worked for me, or this is something that I've seen and we should try it in you know, my business, your business, whatever. That's really helpful to me. So uh, yeah, because right along with what Mike taught and what Brian is doing in his business, plug in the holes. One other thing that stood out to me is just what Brian was saying about, he, it was almost a casual remark, but he was talking about how he's treating his freelance like a pro as a client. And this is something that I think we could do as copywriters a lot better. You know, when we have these ideas for our own business, whether it's creating a new product or creating a new service or a package of some kind, or if we want to write a book or develop a course or, you know, create some kind of a program, whatever those things are, oftentimes those ideas kind of sit out there and they take a backseat to the client work and to the other stuff that we're doing. And the fact that Brian has uh, said that those projects are kind of that third or fourth client and they're actually booked into his schedule and he's spending time to get stuff done. I just, I really like that approach. And I think it's something that we can all learn from. And maybe, you know, it's just good to know how many projects you can handle or how many clients you can handle. So he talked about four clients on average, I think three to four clients. That may not be the same for everyone. It could be more, it could be less, but understanding, you know, even for us with the copywriter club, the copywriter club is a client. It's a big client. So it's like, in my mind, it's at least two clients. If I can handle four projects a month, the copywriter club's at least two, probably three. But even just thinking through it that way allows you to not overcommit, not take on too much, especially for people who tend to think they can do everything, but they really can't mm -hmm. like me. So I think that approach is really helpful to think about what you want to do and how it fits into to just your your capacity. We only can do so much. Yeah. And if you don't if you don't treat it like a client, you end up boxing it into your weekend or into your evenings or you know family time or personal time or it just doesn't get done. And so it's definitely it's definitely better to treat it as a client and actually book it into your calendar. Thanks to Brian for stopping by and sharing so much detail about his business. Uh, Brian put together a couple of bonuses for any listeners like you who might want the instant agreement that he mentioned while we were talking. Plus, he's giving away the exact script that he used to get his clients to send him more referrals. He even shares exactly when it is that you need to have this conversation in order to get your clients to say yes. So to get those two bonuses, just visit freelancelikeapro.com forward slash TCC. And it doesn't really matter if you capitalize TCC or not. I think you're going to get the same reports either way. And that's the end of another show. Our intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muttner. You can learn more about programs like the Copywriter Underground and the Copywriter Think Tank, which is our mastermind group for copywriters who are building six-figure businesses by visiting thecopywriterclub.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Copywriters coming together to help the world write better. Copy and make more money. Kira and Rob's Copywriters Club.